Well, hi, I'm Dr. Rob Silver. I'm a holistic veterinarian in Boulder, Colorado. I'm a bit of an expert on the use of nutraceuticals for animals and most especially for the use of cannabis. And I'm speaking to you from the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve in holistic vet care is that why by accepting alternative therapies, people are rejecting conventional therapies. And I really believe that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So my biggest pet peeve is that we don't include conventional diagnostics and therapeutics in our holistic care as appropriate. Calling out the myths, misinformation, and BS in the wellness industry. This is the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. Here's your host, holistic pharmacist, supplement expert, Big Mouth, Dr. Neil Smoller. Broadcasting from the most famous small town in the world, Woodstock, New York, this is the podcast that pulls back the curtain on the natural product industry. Today's feature conversation is with Dr. Robert Silver, holistic veterinarian. Dr. Robert Silver is the chief medical officer of RX Vitamins and founder of WellPet Dispensary. He and I had a great conversation. We talked about the parallels of holistic care in the two versus four-legged worlds. I'm really excited to share this with you. First, let's do the plug thing, right? We're growing, and that's thanks to all of you. There's a lot of sharing going on. Your kindergarten teacher would be so, so proud. If you haven't, take three minutes. Give us five stars, thumbs up, high five, whatever it is that your listening platform does to say that we're doing a good job. Just take a minute and do that for us. I appreciate it. You can do it every episode. That's how much I need that positive reinforcement. Before we get into the interview, though, I do have a Q&A that I want to just go over that was posed to me by one of our customers about human needs, even though I don't really know her rabies vaccine status. She wished to remain nameless, but this young lady's from Clarksville, New York. So here is a question and answer about mushroom therapy, something Dr. Silver and I talk about. Our question today is from an anonymous listener out in Clarksville, New York. She had a question about Lion's Mane. She had purchased an approved brand by us a few months back. She had tried a couple days of therapy, which was two pills daily, I think is the labeled recommended dose. And she got severe dizziness and headaches. And she took three weeks off just to see if it was a fluke or not and cut it down to one and started again. And she didn't get the dizziness, but she still got the headaches. And her question wasn't about the side effects of lion's mane, but how can all these doctors be out there talking about the benefits of lion's mane and not mention all of this stuff? All these wellness websites, all of these people doing the reviews, nobody's talking about these harmful things. I thought this was going to be a product that was going to save the day and just be this great, safe thing to take. And I believe that it was a great question because it brings up two major problems with the natural products industry. The first thing is is that all of these things are essentially pharmaceuticals, right? They all have active components that will cause some sort of therapeutic effect, some desired effect that we want, but they all have a risk for side effects. And what we do is, you know, you listen to a drug commercial and it lists out all the side effects and we instantly blow those out of proportion, even though those happen in a rare situation. Oh my God, that's going to cause my tongue to swell up and I'm going to die. But that happens in like 0.12% of the population. So we overplay the side effects of drugs and downplay the, the beneficial effects while we do the opposite for the natural products industry. And it's a weird thing. It's a cultural phenomenon. We just believe inherently that natural products are safe and have no adverse events. And 
That's not true, of course. We all have that risk of how our, you know, our bodies are going to handle these things differently. You know, we are going to react to them in a unique manner compared to someone else potentially. And they do have risks and we have to understand what those risks are. The second thing that this brings up is that a lot of the times people are talking about how safe these things are because they aren't anything, right? We talk about the quality of natural products all the time. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about how mycelium is the major ingredient to most mushrooms. And mycelium isn't a mushroom. It doesn't have nearly any of the active ingredients that are found there. In fact, most products that are advertised as mushrooms aren't mushrooms. They're not even mostly mycelium. They're mostly rice or grain. And so when people are taking these, uh, yeah, they're not going to have any side effects. It's going to go well uh, because because there's nothing active in there. And we have to understand that also the benefits of these compounds aren't happening because of the lion's mane, because there is none in there. Um, so what's really going on there? That's a great question. That's a, a whole nother discussion. But sometimes any active product, whether it's a drug or a supplement, will have side effects. And there's a couple different ways to handle this. And first and foremost, you have to understand what those side effects are before you take the product. So you have to get an honest conversation going about what are the good and the bad associated with both drugs and nutraceutical products, right? Sometimes those side effects will diminish over time. They're not severe things and our body will kind of adapt or kind of build a tolerance to the side effects and they'll diminish, right? So we have to understand what are those severe side effects that if we cross that red line, we need to call the doctor right away and stop use. And what are the ones that we should expect? And of those ones that we should expect that are normal, how many of those will go away? So the strategy should be to understand all of those things and then start on a low dose and see how you respond to it, okay? And stick with it. Sometimes that requires white knuckling it, right? The headaches that she may be experiencing may just be part of her getting used to that lion's mane for her, right? So white knuckle it. Hold on for uh, three to five days. See if those headaches diminish. Make sure you're doing everything you can to reduce headaches like drinking lots of fluids and reducing caffeine and, and all of that um, and alcohol and uh, just persist. Now, if the side effects persist beyond reasonable amount of time, or if those side effects are those red line serious ones, then obviously we have to stop. So contact your physician and you know get instructions on how to proceed from there. So I thought that was an excellent question because it definitely frames the whole conversation around natural products being these safe side effect free therapy modalities as incorrect. And uh, I think that most of us will get benefit and very few of us will experience side effects when our supplements are done strategically. And that's all we're really looking for. So what's it like to be a holistic veterinarian? How does your practice differ than other veterinarian practices that are out there? Well, that's an interesting question because ideally, you know, a holistic practice would deal with, would provide a lot of preventative care, preventative information would help to, you know, prevent, you know, these, these very difficult to treat chronic diseases later on in life. But, and, and I, and I wish that the, the pet owning public were more aware of that. I've tried to stress that, but instead what most commonly happens is that the, the pet parent comes to the holistic practitioner in the 11th hour when right. all the conventional therapies have failed or when their their discussion with Dr. Google about what the next alternative therapy is they're, they're using is not helping their animal. 
And, and I think that, you know, early intervention, you know, er, prevention, early intervention are really the key to um, addressing these really very serious, potentially terminal um, chronic diseases like cancer, like epilepsy, like inflammatory bowel disease, and so on and so forth, you know. Yeah, I'm, I think that it's pretty funny that we, the things that we do in our human lives extend over to the animal lives. But it's really interesting because the, the, the pet food is my biggest thing. That's the number one source, I feel, for um, proper care of an animal. Is, and proper care of a human is with nutrition, of course, too. But when we shop for pet food, we look for the packages with all the beautiful fruits and vegetables on it because we know that's healthy for us. And, and we want our pets to, to live healthy lives and we're feeding them these things, not knowing that that actually could be a, a problem, right? So like, what's your take on the, the, the nutritional side as uh, the foundational piece to holistic care for an animal? Well, it's said, you know, that the source of all health really is derived from our nutrition, you know, and from early on, getting good nutrition builds a healthy immune system and reduces, you know, chronic inflammation, which drives so many diseases. So, um, yes, I think diet is extremely important and is usually the first place I begin with each patient. But um, the myth around commercial foods, you know, is that they are complete and balanced and the only food that an animal needs its whole life. They are convenient. They are designed to um, avoid producing deficiency diseases, but they're not really optimized or they're not really designed to optimize health, you know, or function in a preventative way. And the levels of the nutrients that are put into these foods, like maybe they've got some mushrooms in the food or some antioxidants, but the actual levels that they put into the food um, are way too low to have any real biological effect. They really make the label look fancy. You yeah. know, they make it, they make it look sexy. Yeah. I, we call it pixie dusting in the human world where it says, it says it's got all this beautiful stuff in it and then they're just sprinkling in the small amounts of ingredients to make you feel better. One of the things that makes commercial foods so problematic is that they are highly processed under heat, under pressures. And we see chemical changes in the ingredients in the food that changes them from what they are supposed to be to pro-inflammatory compounds, right. compounds that might be what we call glycotoxins. And in addition to that, because there's certain price points that have to be delivered with pet food, even when they're talking about human-grade ingredients, because they can't actually be human ingredients, the FDA doesn't really allow that crossover between humans and animals. But many of these ingredients are derived from animals or from plants that are genetically modified and as a result have received huge amounts, toxic amounts of glyphosate or Roundup, mm -hmm. you know, as, which is part of the whole GMO thing. So there's some studies, recent studies, where they are actually able to detect glyphosate residues in pet food coming from the meat, coming from the soy, coming from the corn. And we, and we know from glyphosate, in fact, they're recently with Monsanto recently lost a case, lost a legal case where, um, you know, where, uh, human, where they have to pay millions and millions of dollars to people who, who got cancer from 
from exposure to Roundup, from exposure to glyphosate. So our animals are no different, and they don't have choices as far as what they're going to eat right. unless they go out the alley and get into the garbage, mm-hmm. you know? And maybe they're getting into the garbage because the commercial food are empty calories. Right. And so all of that is is fascinating, of course, and it's so typical for the society that we live in, right? We're trying to mass produce this stuff using the cheapest ingredients, maximizing profit and at, at the expense of the health of the animals or the humans that are eating the foods or supplements in, in the supply chain. So let's talk about the macro ingredients because one of my you know pet peeves with pet nutrition is is that it's pretty much not nutrition. It's 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 really like grain rich when it should be protein rich. And um, you know I have my whole rap on that, but I'd like to hear what you have to say about um, the 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 macronutrient makeup of the foods. Well, I think that um, we can use different macronutrient ratios in foods that and we're talking about the percentage of calories that are derived from protein or carbohydrates or fats or the amount of fiber those sorts of things Um, um, we can create different nutrient profiles in our foods to create different um, metabolic outcomes, you know, in the patient. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, most of the commercial foods that are out there, because they're so rich in carbohydrates, um, that they become pro-inflammatory in nature. They right. they are delivering far more carbohydrates and they're processed carbohydrates than these animals evolved eating in the wild. And so we're we're trying. So the best diets are the diets that best mimic their native diet the diet they would be eating if they were out wandering you know out in the in the wilds getting their own food you know killing animals or eating dead animals or foraging off of off of grasses and and um and um, vegetables and, and other types of plants that are out there. Right. The idea that most of the foods are not rich in protein at all and instead of these grains then they, they can create these these long-term problems, the skin and coat issues, teeth and gum issues, the gut issues. So let's talk about like common gut issues that you find in cats and dogs because of the the lack of proper preventative care. May I say one more thing, which is, which, which is that the actual format of extrusion, the kibble, the kibbles are created through this process called extrusion, which uses high pressures and temperatures to create those cute little kibbles, you know. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that in order to form those kibbles, in order for them to stay together, you've got to have about 50% carbohydrates right. in that food. Mm-hmm. So any diet that's a kibble that says, you know, um, low carbs, mm-hmm. is, is, it's, they're just, it's bull****. Right. Um, so that's, you know, so, so that's, that's part of what I dislike about the, about the, the pet food industry is that they're lying to the consumer about many of these things. So the idea of uh, kibble being this um, this high carbohydrate thing just in in its existence in order to make it it needs to be rich in carbohydrates and that's a lie. So you have cats and dogs that are then chewing on this stuff and then that sugar is sitting on their teeth and causing the same issues that we have in humans cavities and and weak teeth and gums right like that's a common thing so so what is it that you use in your practice that isn't a kibble um when it comes to pet nutrition do you use the granulated formulas do you do you end up going to uh the wet food what what do you use well i'm kind of a purist Mm -hmm. and i think that i i probably 
turn off some clients because what I'm asking them to do might be more work and time commitment than they're willing to provide to their animal. But I really, I really think there's no better diet than a well-designed, well-prepared homemade diet, wow. whether it be whether it be raw or cooked food. Mm-hmm. I've been, I have two dogs. I give them this kind of, I've given them this meal their entire lives and every other animal I've had for the last 20, 25 years gets homemade food um, every day, mm-hmm. um, which involves, you know, uh, some uh, raw ground turkey, some raw vegetables, and then a certain amount of carbohydrates in the form of whole grains. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they thrive and they do well. My cats, on the other hand, I feed them what is called the prey diet. Okay. And the prey, di- which means I feed them birds. I mm. buy quail from a game producer who sells me a, sends me a hundred quail that are frozen a month, and I feed. I now have only one cat left. I had three. The other two died at age nineteen. This one's twenty, and he's thriving still. Although he's twenty, he's got some issues, <laughs> as we all do as mm. we age. And so you know, he looks. And I feed him a little bit of canned he, now and again because I want to keep his weight up. But um, he looks. He prefers eating the this quail. I I peel the I, I skin the feathers off it to make less of a mess. And now that he's older, he doesn't have the same jaw strength. We cut the bird up into little pieces, so it makes it easier. But he eats the whole thing: bird, the the, the beak, the head, the the bones. And one thing that I learned was that when I'm listening to the cat, Mike, this cat, or all of my cats chomping down on this bird, it makes a sound identical to what they make when they're chomping down on kibble. kibble. Yeah. And I think that's part of the attraction of kibble. And you know, I have to say, you know, animals aren't don't intuitively know what good food is this cat will eat potato chips you know he'll eat kibble if i leave it out of course you know they you know they've got a sweet tooth they like these things yeah but i eat m&ms yeah it doesn't mean it's yeah, right you that know. doesn't mean it's good for them you're not going to feed your child snickers bars instead of a you know a balanced meal mm-hmm. so but you know into every life a little vice must fall i don't think there's any problem with an occasional you know sweet thing here or there for a cat dog or human um I think it balances out as long as the main, the majority of the food is of good quality. So none of your animals are vegan then? <laughs> um, I don't think that from a, from a biological standpoint, any of my animals um, deserve to be vegan. Right. You know, I, don't, mm-hmm. I, I think that they need animal protein. And yes. I think this whole movement to feed um, animals who are carnivores or obligate or, you know, facultative carnivores, mm-hmm. you know, is, 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 troublesome to yes. me because it's not their biological food. At the same time, our planet is undergoing huge pressures. And we're learning that the methane gas produced through animal production, particularly cow production, you know, is contributing to, you know, climate change as much as, you know, exhausts from cars, right. you know, and, and industry. So that's one reason we're seeing all this push towards plant-based nutrition and plants-based protein, it is possible to provide a vegan diet to dogs and cats, but it has to, you have to be very fastidious about making sure they get all those elements that aren't normally found in vegetables that are only found in animal products. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a challenge and that's kind of why I say it yes. is because they're carnivores. I try to teach people, you know, they're not humans. We're omnivores. They are T-Rexes. They are dinosaurs that love to eat flesh. So they need the organ meats. They need the 
the and they can still eat carbohydrates, of course, and they've evolved to be able to handle it. But you know, at this point, using a, a vegan diet actually can can cause more diseases uh, in in cats and dogs than it can uh, you know solve them. So um, so let's talk about the impact of the. Most commercial foods, as we say, have the low dose stuff. It's mostly marketing. You know, you look at that label, the shiny fruits and vegetables, all the list of all the healthy things that are in there. That's just marketing because the real science, the real formulation isn't isn't a healthy one, right? So, and then we have all these potential exposures to these chemicals and compounds and we're not getting the macronutrients or even the micronutrients that we need. So what ends up happening to most cats and dogs because of this? Well, it doesn't allow them to operate at, a, at, a, at an optimal level of functioning, mm-hmm. which means that if they have genetic tendencies to diseases, they may very well manifest those. If they have you know, acquired or environmental tendencies towards diseases, it makes them more likely to get these as well. You know, it's like if you're in a room uh, where there's a lot of people coughing and have colds, you know, um, some people will get ill from that and some people won't. Well, the people that won't probably are, you know, have their immune systems are optimized in part through what they're eating, probably in part also through their lifestyle and their genetics. Right. And so how about some more like immediate effects? Have you seen um, diseases or issues with cats and dogs that was solely a result of their diet? Well, um, I yes, I think yeah. I'm just trying I, to make think, it real for people because sure, the yeah. thing with nutrition and even human nutrition, it's it, like if you like crap, you're, you're really not going to feel it today. You know, I have a buddy and he's my age, 30, 40, and he's been eating pretty hardcore and his A1C was 10. But I also have 400, 500 pound friends that have very, very clean numbers. So even today, they still don't see the impact of, of their poor nutrition until a long time from now, right? So it's very yeah. rare that people actually see that. So what are some mm-hmm. things that can happen to cats and dogs because of poor nutrition that's a little bit more immediate? Absolutely. Well, I think the first thing that, you know, the first kind of reaction that we see to food is a very immediate reaction, which has to do with digestive function. So it could be diarrhea, soft stools, mm-hmm. it could be vomiting, mm-hmm. it could even be uh, an inappetence, a lack of appetite because something in the food disturbed their stomach. Right. So, and that, that's always very, that's very obvious to the, to the pet parent, you know, especially if they've got white carpets and they wake up the next morning yes. with a mess on it. Um, I think probably the second most common approach, common problem that we would see more short term would be with food sensitivities and food allergies mm-hmm. where there's something in the food that is inter- is interfering with some aspect of their immune system either causing itchiness or maybe causing um, irritable or inflammatory type bowel disease or colitis types of side effects mm-hmm. um, so I think those are probably the two the two most um, obvious right. So let's kind of dig into that diarrhea thing because I think it's very interesting. People don't understand this, but there's ingredients in most commercial pet foods that are put there to constipate the animal. And the reason that they're put there to constipate the animal is because the carbohydrate load is normally too much for their guts. And the water rushes into their guts and causes a diarrhea. And if they didn't put things like, what is it, beet pulp and like cellulose and stuff like this to absorb up all of that fluid, you would have a mess on your hands. And in fact, some people look to the stool size as a measure of quality. You know, this is quality nutrition because look how big the stool is, right? Exactly. And really the size of the stool is really a direct function of the amount of fiber 
in the food, mm-hmm. you know, so um, you can even, you know, with two different kibbles, you can see different amounts of, of poop. I think some of the marketing these days, though, is to reduce the size of the poop because there's less cleanup. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's I think that's a factor as well. I mean, I find that personally. Yeah, and we're you know we're seeing diets. You know, the the, the fiber can be a fa- can be a helpful factor in terms of stabilizing the stool. You'll see some diets that actually include clay, like a montmorillonite or bentonite clay, yeah. which also has historically known to help control um, soft stools. Not because it it packs in like a brick, but because it actually has um, a, a beneficial effect on reducing inflammation in the bowel. But wouldn't be there unless if the food was healthy. Like your animals don't need bentonite clay in order to have healthy stools, correct? No. Um, <laughs> their stools aren't always perfect. You right. know, it, there's, you know, I mean, life is, life is like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you've seen, some dogs will eat dirt, mm-hmm. you know, and um, dirt eating is uh, historically, you know, how animals would get their clay. They, you know, they would instinctually eat it because it provided something. And we also know they're soil-based probiotics. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when we keep our animals in these sanitized little environments and feed them food out of a package, why are we surprised when they get diseases, you right. know? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have any exposure to, you know, early diseases. They're taken out of, taken away from the mother. They're loaded up with all these vaccinations. They're put in these environments where everybody's using hand sanitizer and disinfectants. And so it's, it's no surprise that we're seeing these kinds of problems in them. There's also some diets now that are adding probiotics, you know, beneficial bacteria can also help to promote, you know, healthier digestive function. And they're, they're doing that because the kibble itself, I think is a, is a flawed material in terms of normal digestive function. You know, Mm -hmm. it'd be like if we ate pancakes all the time. All the time. Right. Exactly. And you're just feeding the wrong types of bacteria in your gut. So you need to replace, you know, your bacterial intake with some healthier strains, but that's not even the case either. It might say probiotics, but then it has all these strains that, that may not have any clinical relevance. We actually had a uh, probiotic specialist on the podcast recently and, and her whole thing is there's a difference between a probiotic, which confers a health benefit and just gross bacteria, you know? And so a lot of the times people are just getting gross bacteria versus an actual probiotic. So, you know, you're talking, I would imagine it's like a a business coach. You know, if you go to the right business coach, their business is being run very, very well, right? They're there because they're practicing what they preach. And it sounds to me like you've got some great animals and your animals are doing really great because you're using the best in class practices based on the best science. But a lot of us don't have the time or the energy or the storage space to get 100 quails and then skin them and cut them up and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So, <laughs> Right. Well, you know, and, and as an expert, you know, I think it's important for me to walk my talk, you yeah. know, and to do these things myself so I know whereof I am speaking. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've been <laughs> we've been posting a lot how I struggle with a lot of health and wellness stuff, just like other people mm-hmm. to make it more relatable. But I think there's a lot of stuff that I, I, I do as well that's in line with the holistic stuff that I teach. But, mm-hmm. you know, the the question though becomes if we're not going to do that best in class stuff, we don't have the time or the energy to do it, but we're going to try to attempt something. What is it that we should be doing that approaches that, but isn't that amount of energy or effort? So what could people do? What types of interventions could they do that um, isn't as intense, but is as healthy or healthier than the, the conventional foods? Good question, Neil. And quite honestly, for the past 25 years, I've been kind of developing um, approaches for pet 
parents to use to you know help them get their animals healthy and keep them animals animals healthy using uh, using dietary supplements or what mm. we now call nutraceuticals mm-hmm. and um, I've I've learned that even if they are feeding a crappy diet or diet that I consider to be crappy I'm sure there's you know some veterinary nutritionists out there that think that commercial foods are the best things since sliced bread mm-hmm. but um, we don't talk to them though well, you should actually. I, I think they have they have interesting perspectives to offer and and, and all, but we'll, we can get into that some other time. But um, I found that by, for instance, we can add probiotics. We can add many right. of the things these commercial f- companies are adding to the foods, but we can add them in substantial amounts with products that have been tested to work well. And we don't necessarily have to feed the kibble, although many people will. But there's many options available now in the um, pet food marketplace because we have the kibble which is the same which is the standard but what only became the standard of care like in the 50s when purina patented the extruder process that revolutionized the pet food industry prior to that a lot of it was a lot of it was focused around canned foods we only started having kibble after the during the second world war when there was a shortage of, of metal to use for pet food cans. And so they, right. so someone got smart and started making the kibble. But we also have the freeze-dried foods, which means you can add hot water to it and reconstitute it, kind of like backpacking diets. I like to use those and add a little bit of extra um, fresh food to it, some, some chopped up vegetables, maybe a little bit of, of meat, you know, maybe some healthy leftovers. But that can be, you know, it, hopefully the people are eating well if they're feeding their leftovers. There also are the frozen um, raw diets, and there also are frozen cooked diets. So there's a lot of options available. You don't have to be stuck with the kibble, but all of them cost a little more, right. and all of them are not quite as convenient as just oh, you know, grabbing that bag and dumping it in the bowl, you know, and going on with your life. Right. So, um, but those, but there are better dietary options, and there are some companies that are offering um, kind of like a homemade food, you know, prepared meals delivered to your home. Right. There are some companies that are providing you with um, with uh, websites where you can actually formulate your own meal and then buy from them supplements that would help to balance the food. So I think there's a lot of options. Much of it depends on the pet, the pet consumer's motivation, time, and budget. And I think there are solutions for all of those. I think there's solutions for pet owners who don't have a lot of time and don't have a lot of budget to provide, but have motivation. If you don't have motivation, I don't think you're going to go anywhere. With right. This, yeah. You know. Um, so, you know, looking at probiotics, looking at things like um, clay, looking at amino acids like glutamine that can help to support healthy, um, healthy bowel function. So I've created a line of supplements that are specifically um, provided to veterinarians. We don't provide these supplements to um, pet shops or things like that because they're a higher level, a higher level of quality. And the company is called RX Vitamins for Pets. And we've been around 25 years and um, we're in 18 countries globally and all across the United States. And these products that veterinarians will um, will share with their clients can substantially um, address many of these problems that we're discussing with regard to diet, but also can address other things as well. I have a private website of my own, my own e-commerce site that I work out of my home with my family. It's called wellpetdispensary.com, where I sell many of these same products that I've designed for Arx Vitamins to the pet-owning consumer. 
um, and can offer some advice to them at this location. So I'm not trying to advertise that, but this this is what I'm trying to do to help the, the, the pet consumer um, have a healthier, happier life with their pet and try to avoid some of these nasty diseases that are difficult and expensive to treat in the long run. Yeah, excellent, excellent stuff. And we'll get to that. So, you know, sure. and you, you had mentioned budget, right? So yes. the idea that, you know, Pennywise pound foolish because there's, there's such a high cost to managing diseases once they've happened. So it makes a lot of sense for people to spend a little bit extra on the diet because you can prevent so many conditions just by nutrition alone. I mean, a dog with diabetes whose pancreas didn't fail, like a type two diabetic dog, like how, why does that even exist? You know? Well, yeah, because they're eating so many carbohydrates, right. you know. Uh, and that's the only reason. So insulin and the the medicines and such end up taking a big toll on people. And that, to me, is always a crazy kind of concept. So, and in fact, one of the reasons that we were able to kind of talk was because uh, I believe that you use mushroom supplements in, in, in your in your practice. Is that true? I do. I'm, I'm a big proponent of good quality mushroom extracts. Absolutely. Wonderful. So how do, how do mushrooms end up helping a pet? Mushrooms are, are very um, interesting um, um, organisms. And they're, they're, in a way, they're sort of the scavengers of our world in that they, they produce these enzymes that can digest all sorts of things. But they also produce um, other molecules. And, you know, of course, certainly some mushrooms we know to be poisonous, and those are molecules we try to avoid. You know, some mushrooms are, are psychedelic, and those are, you know, because of some of the ingredients that they contain. But many mushrooms are very tasty and edible, but also contain compounds that have a beneficial effect on the immune system and can have a beneficial effect on the nervous system and other systems in the body. Some of these compounds we call beta-glucans, but there's other other compounds as well, which are like organic acids that we find in um, in mushrooms. So they, they really can support wellness and well-being. They can also address specific diseases regarding immune system function or, or, or malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I find them to be good companions, the, the sort of thing that you may not want to use just, you know, for a week or two, but may you may you probably want to incorporate on a daily basis in your pet's everyday program. Is there like a specific one that you would use then? Like, you know, for most adults, cordyceps because of the stress or like the five defenders from real mushrooms is my favorite for general immune support just because it's a high level of beta-glucans. So is there one in particular that you say should be a part of your kind of core supplements? Well, I think that's a that's a controversial question because each each mushroom does have a different realm of activity. Many of them have overlapping realms of activity. So currently most people are looking at using blended combinations like the five defenders. It has five highly potent, you know, good quality mushrooms in it um, to kind of get a shotgun effect. But there's other, other people that would look at, you know, specific problems they're addressing, like the cordyceps that you mentioned. Cordyceps, you know, is the caterpillar mushroom, caterpillar fungus. And it, um, you know, it's been shown to be supportive of kidney and lung function. And there's even some studies that show it actually enhances performance Mm -hmm. um, to some extent, athletic performance. So, you know, if you had a situation like that, you'd want to get some cordyceps in there. You know, on the other hand, if you have something like allergies or atopy, you may want to look at reishi, the uh, 
Ganoderma mushroom, which um, has triterpenes in it and has uh, molecules in it that actually um, interfere with the release of histamine, mm-hmm. which, is an, which is a crucial molecule in the whole allergic response. Um, so, you know, it depends. You know, I, I think that the important thing about the mushroom extract that you choose is that it should be it should be coming from that fruiting body that actual mushroom shape structure and too many products on the market today in the united states are made not from that fruiting body which which studies have shown has at least 10 times the potency of the of the product they're selling which is mycelium mycelium is the vegetative part of the life cycle of the mushroom and they grow it initially on grain once they grow it on grain to kind of proliferate they then seed the native substrate you know where that mushroom normally would grow like and for for mushrooms like turkey tail, which has gotten a lot of prominence, and that might be another single mushroom you might want to use if you've got a patient with cancer. Um, and so, yeah, so when the mycelium is growing on the grain, um, we the many companies, because it's less expensive, there's less labor involved with that, many companies will take that grain with the mycelium on it and they'll dry it. And then they'll sell that powdered grain as mushroom when it's not. It's mycelium on grain. And it has 50% carbohydrates. So if you're treating a patient with cancer, one of the things we know with cancer is that it feeds on simple sugars and then and then complex carbohydrates, and then protein. So when we have a cancer patient, we're trying to give them a diet that doesn't feed the cancer, but feeds themselves. That's where we get into things like the ketogenic diet, where we were talking about nutrient profiles earlier. Well, if you're giving a mushroom extract that's 50% carbohydrates, and the ketogenic diet is based upon avoiding carbohydrates, you know, you may, you may, be wasting the efforts you're making to create this ketogenic state, which doesn't feed the cancer. So, right. so yeah, so I think the type of mushroom and where it comes from, the real mushrooms, that's an excellent, excellent brand. Totally. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and, I, and I've, I've used their raw materials to create my own proprietary mushroom blend. I call it Coriolis Forte, which also has five mushrooms in it just like the five defenders. They're different mushrooms, but similar. And it has really high, like a 37% beta-glucan content. Right. Yeah, I mean, people don't understand that the biggest voice in mushrooms in the United States and almost globally is selling a brand of mushrooms that aren't really mushrooms. And you you put it nicely that it's mycelium, which is basically like the root system uh, on grain. And, you know, and the idea, though, is like they're not really even getting mycelium, and mycelium is something that can be beneficial in certain extracts, but they're getting rice. They're getting rice with mycelium sprinkled on it is really what they're getting. And and uh, like I like to take a harsher approach because it is such deception and misinformation. If you notice, like that seems to be the theme here, the the deception in the food, deception in the supplements, and mm-hmm. and the pet problems are the same as the human problems, you know? Mm-hmm. Any place somebody can make some money on something, you need to be aware that there could be some deception going on. Absolutely. So yeah. if you had to say, so like supplements are a big part of your practice and I've come up with the vital five for humans. So do you have your core supplements that you say, even with the best diet, some of these things are missing and they could be benefited by supplementing? Yeah, I have a, I have my approach too, similar to, I guess, what your core five is. Mm-hmm. I think 
Number one, feed the best possible diet appropriate for your pet that you can afford and have the time to do. Right. You know, I think that um, some, I know there's some proponents that kind of make people feel guilty because they're not doing from scratch homemade diets every single time. You right. know, it's, you, you know, life is, life is, life is complicated. You know, do the best you can. Yes. You know, so that's number one. Number two, I think adding probiotics, very important. Mm -hmm. Adding a source of antioxidants, very important. And that's three there. Number four, adding a good quality, um, um, effective dosage of polyunsaturated fatty acids, including um, omega-3s from fish and omega-3s from uh, plant materials like um, flaxseed and hempseed. And then um, number five would be um, some sort of a, I would call it an adaptogenic, some sort of a long-term wellness you know, um, supplement. It doesn't have to be an individual thing. Like some of these green foods that we see, you know, which have multiple um, micro or sources of multiple micronutrients can be very good. Or the mushrooms we're discussing, adding the mushrooms to it on a regular basis, I think is important. Mm -hmm. So um, that, those, those, yeah. those would be my top five. What are your top five? So it's very similar. So uh, omega-3 probiotics in humans, uh, bone support is important. Most women aren't getting enough, nearly enough calcium at the, and they're not getting it at the right time. The fourth being protein. I think Americans in general are eating plenty of protein, but individually I've found that most people don't make protein a priority. So it doesn't need to be supplemented. Any of this stuff, it can come from the diet, but you know, protein is a big one, especially collagen, organ meats, that kind of thing isn't a part of our diet. So that's a big one. And then, you know, my fifth is that 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 kind of catch-all. I, I, I don't like multivitamins for humans because we have enough data showing that you don't need them, they don't benefit, but you know, the idea of what you're saying about antioxidants. So I will tell people, if you don't eat enough vegetables, get at least a well-made green powder because then you're going to get some vitamins, minerals, but you'll get those antioxidants that you're missing. So what's your right. source for antioxidants? Like, what do you recommend? Mm -hmm. Well, and remember that for most pets, they're eating kibble. Mm -hmm. So they're not getting any of those brightly yep. colored fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there's a lot of great antioxidants out there. And I think that, you know, what you need to look at is you need to get, have an antioxidant that is effective in a water-soluble base. Mm -hmm. And you need to, because we have, a, well, that's one category of, of, of oxidative stress is that is those that are water-soluble. But then the other category of oxidative stress are the fat-soluble free radicals. And um, so we need, we need two, two types of antioxidants. So looking at a CoQ10, you know, as a good antioxidant for fats, for the fat soluble toxins or a good mixed tocopherol vitamin E product, I think that would be good. Mm -hmm. um, and then for the water soluble, something as simple as vitamin C. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, there's, there's a lot of fancy antioxidants out there. You could look at cranberry, you know, which, which is a great antioxidant. It's got good ORAC values and it has, you know, other benefits as far as, you know, um, the, the urinary tract or the periodontal disease or the digestive system, or even it, there's even some studies showing it have a, having some preventative for cancer, you know, so, so I think that's a possibility. There's another one that's more of a pharmaceutical antioxidant, although derived from foods called alpha lipoic acid, mm -hmm. that's active in both a, a water soluble and fat soluble format. That could be a one-stop shopping for you. I think the gold standard of pharmaceutical antioxidants is N-acetylcysteine. 
mm-hmm. which, which is inexpensive and well accepted and readily available and is really considered to be the gold standard. When, they, when, they're, at, when they're measuring the antioxidant property of SAME, mm-hmm. um, um, which, is a, which is a big supplement in pets for arthritis, um, they compare it to, N, to N-acetylcysteine, NAC. And NAC is usually standardized at, as the 100, and you know, SAMe may come in at you know, 60 to 70% of that activity. So what about yourself? What are your favorite antioxidants? So I, just because what ends up happening with the antioxidant world with humans is that um, the synthetic isolated antioxidants tend to be more problematic or uh, basically not really doing anything. Um, I'll tend to push people more towards whole foods. So if they do want vitamin E, they'll get weed germ. You know, if they, but you know, for for most like antioxidant just across the board, a well-made green or red formula, which essentially I'm saying is like spirulina and chlorella and even some vegetables or like plant-based greens that they may not be mm-hmm. getting exposed to. And then, you know, some reds, uh, just berries, any, any type of berry you can get, which mm-hmm. will again have vitamin C and vitamin E and all of this stuff, but you know, a more assimilable form, you don't have to worry about the risks of strokes because vitamin E in humans can, can cause strokes. So it's all about kind of that for me it's you know we take a a, a, try to take a food-based approach wherever we can Mm -hmm. different for animals like you said it's it's different because their diets are such crap you know uh and it is it is like really just manufactured you know so uh like it is right i mean if people (laughs) if people were eating you know tv dinners or or like just zone bars or whatever kind bars that are out there then yeah i would probably (laughs) say they need multivitamins and those kinds of things because they're they're truly malnourished by the way people People are eating that way. You know, right. the American <laughs> diet is the American diet is, is is crazy. I have a slide I show when I'm talking about diets and nutrition to veterinarians, where I have you know this veterinarian giving advice to these two people with their dog, and the dog looks all kind of you know beat down. The the the, the husband and wife you know are all kind of ragged and you know, and just don't look like they're taking care of themselves. And the veterinarian says, well, now, you know, if you're going to feed her a homemade diet, you're going to have to eat well yourself. <laughs> and, and actually, it's very true. Like, you, you know, you need to, as a veterinarian, I'm not going to suggest to a couple such as that, that they provide their pet with homemade food. They're probably in their minds, not criticized in, in their minds, thinking this guy is crazy. Right. What do you mean? Fix food for our dog? We didn't even fix food for ourselves, you know? Right. So yeah, that's so that's why we always start with diet and food because it is it is the place to begin. So let's talk about weed. Um, I <laughs> know people that would blow weed in their dog's face when they were you know doing their bong rips in college, just like yep. they do in the movies. But I think you're talking about something a little bit more sophisticated, huh? Well, and and I I hate that people would we do, do that, that kind of to stuff. animals. Secondhand I don't smoke. Think, yeah, right. I don't Come think on. animals. Well, that's not secondhand. That's really firsthand. But I I um I, I think that animals don't like to get high. From my observations, mm. I think it interferes with their survival instinct. You I know, don't know. I've seen wonder. cats and catnip, though. I mean, I've seen that. They, well, that's they, different. <laughs> that's different. Okay. That's 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 a different molecule. All right. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to hear about that too. Because yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't think it's right to do that. But mm-hmm. no, we've as a veterinarian practicing in Colorado, you know, for the last thirty. 35 years, I, I practiced all through the legalization of first medical marijuana and then the legalization of adult use marijuana. And so I got a lot of firsthand experience with that. And then when the farm bill passed and they legalized um, hemp 
to legalize the growing of hemp, and now we're working on legalizing the the hemp products that are that are in the marketplace already. Although there's no legal justification for them yet, <laughs> um, they're all illegal. Everything out there is illegal. I know that, that, I, that that's one of we we bang the drum yeah. on, but whatever. But we'll, we won't. We we can get into that at some later time. So, um, but I've but. Dogs in particular have been found through studies to have a really high density of membrane receptors in their brain for THC. And these receptors, the distribution of the receptors is in areas of the brain that could potentially cause them harm. It can cause them to have these neurologic episodes. It can affect their brain stem, so it can affect heart rate and respiration. Generally alone, the THC alone, unless it's given in large quantities like 50 to 60 mg per keg IV, isn't going to cause death. But commonly, pets are getting their THC combined with chocolate when pet owners are bringing home edibles from the dispensary getting high and then forgetting them and leaving them on the coffee table. Their dog being an opportunist, of course, scarfs it up and they get a toxic dosage of chocolate and THC. Their child might as well, you know, and mm -hmm. in some in some states, um, children who accidentally ingest a human's edible and have to go to the ER, the parents are charged with child abuse. Mm. And I think there in some states, we may see the same thing with pets. So the, the, the biggest important thing I want to say here to your to your listeners is, you know, avoid, you know, be very careful around THC and your dogs because mm -hmm. it could send them to the ER. On the other hand, we find in households where people smoke pot mm -hmm. that there is secondhand smoke and that the secondhand smoke seems to create a tolerance in the dogs over time to the adverse effects of THC if they happen to ingest a higher oral dose. It might still make them sedated, but it doesn't send them to the ER with this ataxic syndrome that they get. So I've been focusing on hemp because hemp is the same plant as marijuana, but has been bred to have very low levels of THC, so low that it's that that if they're if the product is properly analyzed, they're too low to create adverse effects in the pet. And so Hemp is very high in CBD. It's high in these, these plant molecules called terpenes and high in other molecules like CBD, but not THC, which also have a beneficial effect in the body. These are called cannabinoids or plant cannabinoids, which we call phytocannabinoids. CBD, CBG, C CBC, THCV, you know, to name a few. There's a lot of them. The, the cannabis plant has 80 to 100 um, cannabinoid molecules in them, most of which have biological activity. This is one reason the plant is so potent and can do so many different things. Mm -hmm. CBD and all the other, the only molecule in the plant that gets you high and is problematic for pets is the THC. Everything else has been shown to be very beneficial when given at, you know, reasonable dosages. So you, when you're using these cannabis-related plants, you're really staying away from the THC and, and, and that at all. Is there, um, is there for you, like, do you try to push towards the broad-spectrum products then, the ones that are just CBD with no, you know, 0.3%, you know, legal limit of THC or? Well, in my work for RX Vitamins and in the hemp industry, I developed a zero THC product for RX Vitamins. And in the past four years, We've put 250,000 bottles of this zero THC hemp into the 
hands of veterinarians in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the clinical reports that I get back from these veterinarians, because I, I travel extensively to veterinary conferences and stand up at these, ex, you know, on these exhibit floors wearing my monkey suit, mm-hmm. talking, you know, to, not, it's not a real monkey suit. It's actually a suit. <laughs> um, <laughs> talking to, uh, you know, talking to veterinarians about their experiences and, and, Although we had, before we became more familiar with hemp, thought that THC was the end-all and the be-all when it comes to cannabis medicine, it turns out it's only one part of many, many molecules found in the plant right. that cause benefit. And so without the THC, we still see the benefit. Right. There, are, there are certain specific conditions which we would want to use THC, but the amount of THC we'd want to use for, to benefit the THC is much higher than is found in hemp. You'd have to get it at a dispensary. Mm-hmm. And because it's higher than what's in hemp, you're also standing the risk of your pet being sent to the ER with this reaction to the THC. So what are you using CBD for, I guess? Well, uh, there's a, a wide range of potential applications. The ones that we have found to be best right now with the dosages that we're using and the products we have available, one, anxiety, really good for anxiety. Could be good for some of these multiple multiple pet households where you have some social interactions that aren't so friendly. You know, could, could be multiple cats in the household where you've got some that might be urinating. It may help to reduce their stress and reduce their their drive to urinate. So anxiety is good. You know, travel, you're traveling in cars with dogs, airplane travel, company over at the house, thunder, fireworks. You know, it's not, you know, especially with the with the noise phobias, those are difficult things to to address. And so may not work as well as for other things. But anxiety, it's huge. And we find that with anxiety, we can use lower dosages and still get a really good effect. And scientifically, what we have found is that the CBD stimulates what are called the serotonin pathways in the nervous system. These are the pathways that are the calming and the vegetative you know, um, pathways, not the, the fight or flight stress type pathways. Right. So, um, so that's, how the C- that's one way that CBD works for anxiety. Another application is for pain in general. And specifically, it's being used for the pain associated with osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that I have to say about treating pain in animals is, first, you have to assume that they're painful because they're not going to tell you. And many animals will hide their pain. They're very stoic. You know, they have this herd mentality that if they show their pain, they're going to get left behind mm-hmm. by their you know, by their herd, by their flock or whatever. So we, so we're being, so the veterinary profession now is being very assertive about making sure that the animals aren't in pain. And we've got some good pharmaceutical remedies for that, that work pretty well, but they do have some potential adverse side effects. We have, you know, we've got opiates, we've got NSAIDs, and now we have this whole new category of molecule, these cannabinoids right. and these terp- and these associated terpenes, which also can help to relieve pain. So the more the, the more different approaches you use, modalities to treat pain, like let's say maybe you're going to use acupuncture, maybe you're going to use physical therapy, maybe you're going to use an NSAID, maybe occasionally, you know, an opiate, you want to use all of them combined as as much as you need to for this individual patient to make sure they're not going to feel pain. CBD 
has been good in that regards because it can reduce pain without needing the THC to do that. If the pain is very severe, then we need to use higher doses of CBD. And if the higher doses of CBD aren't going to be effective for addressing that pain, that's when we would add in the THC very carefully. Very nice. So uh, we don't have a lot of time. You and I both said that this is going to probably be a long one, right? We're going to go yeah, pretty long. We can, we can we have... talk. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to wrap with this idea of the DIY mentality. You had mentioned Dr. Google, you know, yes. and this is something that we deal with a lot. The, you know, the accessibility of the information is amazing. It's great that people can get out there. The problem is, is that they're not really trained to be able to process and handle all of this stuff and discern bias and, and, you know, be able to understand the science fully. So we have this DIY mentality. So what are some good resources for people if they do want to do their own research while they're working with like a high quality vet for like dosing and safety of some supplements or even just nutrition? And do you have any, any thoughts around that? Well, um, I have a blog, um, Great. which is, which is called nurse your pet com. It's it's been a bit neglected lately, but I I discuss topics like cannabis and addressing diseases with cannabis, and also other supplements as well um, with regards to cancers specifically, which is one of my my primary areas of interest. But also um, chronic um, um, neurologic problems, chronic digestive problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know a lot of there there is information on the internet that is good, but it. But the consumer has to has to look at what the sources are and where it's coming from. Everybody seems to has some some axe to grind right. on the internet, mm-hmm. some some advantage to trying to give to themselves by giving you the information. So the consumer has to be very aware of that. Um, I, I don't actually have, I, I can't actually give you resources. I, I don't know where else to suggest. Right. I there's a the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association, mm-hmm. AHVMA. Org, um, has a, a, um, a listing of holistic vets that are members of this organization around the country. And I think, I think holistic vets um, are a good resource because one of the things that we focus on with holistic medicine is education mm-hmm. and, and, and providing resources that aren't normally available. So there also is information for pet owners on the, the AHVMA website. Um, but I, I don't off the top of my head. I'm sorry. That's not a problem. I mean, it really comes down to having a great relationship with somebody that they trust and being able to reach out to them. You know, I think, I think that's important. And some veterinarians will do telephone consults, you know, so I know not everybody lives in areas where there are constant, you know, where you have choices as far as holistic veterinarians and um, some of the regulations and restrictions regarding telephone consultations are starting to loosen up a bit. Um, so I think that's not a bad choice as well. That's something I used to do, but my, my life has gotten so busy. I just don't have that kind of time available to get on the phone and, uh, and talk with clients. I do some email, you know, for people that visit my website, I do give them some advice by email, but not medical advice because I'm not really their veterinarian. You know, right. so I just, tr- I try to be generic with my information and helpful as I can and maybe point them to a local veterinarian they can use. Right. Um, Wonderful. But it's a good question. There do need to be better resources out there. Absolutely. I yeah, I, I, I think so. All right. So, Dr. Silver, uh, thank you for coming on to the podcast and discussing all this great stuff with us today. 
We appreciate having you. It was a real pleasure, Neil. You're you're a very bright and um, knowledgeable guy, and it's a lot of fun talking with you. I look forward to maybe doing another one of these. Okay? Wonderful. Thank you, sir. You got it. That was a fun discussion. Of course, Dr. Silver and I are going to be fast friends. He's a definite thought leader in the true holistic care arena, especially on the animal side. And he does a lot of work educating fellow practitioners on providing holistic care better. That sounds a lot like me. So I think we're going to be bros. So let's pretend this topic was real interest to you, you know, because it was, it was really awesome. Well, we'll give you all of Dr. Silver's contact info as soon as you can to see all of his great content, but don't forget about yours truly. We've written on pet nutrition and even have a few tips reading packaging on pet food to see if you're getting a truly nutritious product or not. So head on over to woodstockvitamins.com slash pet, P-E-T, to read that very, very popular monthly rant that we did. Today, we talked about CBD. And it's par for course for the Big Mouth Pharmacist, of course. So if you need a rundown on CBD, check out our page, woodstockvitamins.com slash CBD. We've got a really good collection of all the basic information you need to know. I even did a full hour webinar on the topic so you can get really familiar with the whole thing. Dosing for cats and dogs, though, based on resources we've come across, say that most cats and dogs are dosed between one and six milligrams for every 10 pounds, and that can be done a couple times a day. So I asked the good doctor what he said, and he had, uh, based on original references and then like customized to the anecdotal success he's found, this is a little bit more specific. So the dose that he recommends is between 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilograms twice a day. So how do you find the weight in kilograms? Well, you take the weight in pounds, divide it by 2.2. That's your weight in kilograms. You take that number and multiply it first by 0.1 and then second by 0.5. And then that's your range in actual milligrams that you'll give. He feels like that's the most effective range uh, anecdotally. You can give higher doses in cats because they seem to be a little bit more resistant to the side effects of THC. And what we used to do is tell people if if you give too much to an animal, they're not going to be able to tell you, oh, that's good or it's not working, of course. You, you would just kind of have to hit them until they got drowsy, right? And they would fall asleep and they would be acting sluggish and that kind of a thing. And he says, it's actually not ideal. The THC effect is what's causing that sluggishness and you don't want that. So the idea of having too much THC and these unregulated products is a real concern of his. His recommendation is to use broad spectrum products, which contain no THC at all, at least to start. And then the idea that anxiety is a lower dose requirement than pain, which is a higher dose requirement. He says in painful cats and dogs, he's used between one and two milligrams per kilograms twice a day. So all of that, I hope, will help out when it comes to dosing. This is from a holistic vet who studies cannabis products in animals and uses the best research. And he's saying start at 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilograms twice a day, use a broad spectrum product, and then increase up to one to two milligrams per kilogram watching for sluggishness and that kind of stuff. And make sure the cat does not drive or operate heavy machinery after CBD use. So if you want more of Dr. Silver and his information about cannabis and pets, check out potforpets.info, P-O-T-F-O-R-P-E-T-S dot I-N-F-O. And there's lots of great information there about cannabis and animals. He also has a blog, nurseyourpet.com, just as you would think it would be spelled. And then, of course, his information is at wellpetdispensary.com. So that's it for this week. If you liked what you heard here and you want to hear more of Dr. Silver, check out potforpets.info. That's all of his information about CBD, cannabis, THC, the whole thing. P-O-T-F-O-R-P-E-T-S dot I-N-F-O. 
Otherwise, check out his blog, nurseyourpet.com, just as you think it would be spelled. And then the Well Pet Dispensary, W-E-L-L-P-E-T-D-I-S-P-E-N-S-A-R-Y.com. That is some public school education at best. That spelling was really difficult for me at a young age, but I think they could do it well now. Anyway, thanks so much for being here with us again. And until next week, keep listening, keep learning, and be well. Be well.